BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader Store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasaba, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. POTUS Town and the Ben Jarowski Show. As I speak, it's Friday. Let me get you Friday, February 11th. Here's a headline in the newspaper before I bring my distinguished guest on. Headline in the newspaper, give you an idea what's going on in the world as we speak. And I go into the back pages for this one of my beloved bright one, the Chicago Sun-Times Home Delivered. That's the sports pages. Confident they have the cards. There's a picture of Arturis Karnasovas, the Bulls general manager. Confident they have the cards. On a day of big trades in the East, Bulls bet on their current players with an option to add later. My beloved Bulls, ransacked by injury, hanging on, barely hanging on, waiting for their injured players to heal so they can come back and lead us to the promised land, at which point myself and my distinguished guest will be in Grant Park, standing shoulder to shoulder, cheering our beloved Chicago Bulls on. Without further ado, that's a perfect way to introduce my distinguished guest. Introduce yourself. Hey, how you doing, boss man? Um, this is Peter Jericho, singer-songwriter out of Chicago by way of Cameroon, Central Africa. Um, yeah, Bulls fan, Chicago fan, everything Chicago fan. Um, you know, creating music, um, different genres I'm into, you know, whether it be um, the Afro sound or R&B, you know, or pop, you know, I'm versed in all of that. So that's who I am. And I'm happy to be here. All right. Very good. Uh, Peter, before we take the deep dive and talk about your life and your career, uh, maybe get your thoughts about the Chicago Bulls at the end of the conversation. That was a tease, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, before we do that, let's get the promotion out of the way. All right. Uh, so do a little promotion. Go. Yeah. So um, I got a show coming up on the 17th of uh, February, which is a Thursday at the Promontory. If you're in the Chicago area, that's in Hyde Park. Um, come out, come all. It should be uh, pretty good and different. You know, it's hard to really tell like the type of artist I am in one word. And I also have a, a show on the 26th. Um, I'll give more detail about that. If you follow me on um, my Instagram page, which is Prince Jericho, Facebook, Peter Jericho Music, YouTube, Peter Jericho to hear some of these sweet sounds. 
And uh, yeah, that's me. All right. Before we get uh, take it any further, uh, Peter, I just want to give a shout out uh, to my old friend, uh, Laveric Pusley, uh, who introduced me to Peter. Uh, dear old friend of mine, we used to coach basketball together, believe many, many years ago. And you'll never believe this, Peter Jericho. We used to play basketball together, going at it, one-on-one and all that good stuff. He was a lot better than I was. Oh, he's wow. a great guy. Yeah, I know. Can you believe Laveric playing basketball? Uh, come on, Laveric. Get in shape. Let's get you back on the court. Uh, and so it was Laveric uh, who introduced us, and I'm really glad he did. So thank you very much, Laveric. All right. Uh, you say you're from Chicago by, by way of Cameroon. And that's, um, and I don't want to insult my fellow Chicagoans, but uh, most Americans, and I put myself in this, uh, Peter, I'm no better than the rest of them, are freaking clueless about the world that exists outside our doors. And you probably know this, having grown up in Chicago, uh, a guy from Africa, people are like, what? <laughs> Camel, what? And uh, there's so much ignorance in this country when it comes to anything outside, well, really outside of our neighborhoods. Uh, but so why don't you uh, help us out a little bit? Tell us where Cameroon is and uh, a little bit about your family uh, and what some of the differences between life in Cameroon and life in Chicago. Go ahead. Yeah, so um, I was born here to obviously African parents who migrated here in the 70s to finish off school um, to get their master's degrees and all of that type of stuff, which is awesome for, you know, some Africans coming over here in the 70s. Wow. Um, but uh, my dad didn't like it here. <laughs> this is, this, you know, he wasn't treated the way he felt he needed to be treated with what he had accomplished. Um, those were some tough times too, right? The 60s, 70s in America. Um, we migrated back to um, to Africa in the late 80s. And uh, that's basically where I kind of had my little toddler years getting into teens. And, and then I moved back um, to Chicago um, in the eighth grade. So I got a lot of that the, the youth, you know, trying to learn lessons in life at a young age from both of these cultures. And uh, Cameroon being in Central Africa is French speaking um, predominantly and English speaking 20%. So it's basically the opposite of Canada. Canada is, you know, 80% English, 20% French. And uh, obviously we're a third world nation, but um, very good at soccer. Um, that's how our name has been on the map, um, especially since we just hosted uh, the African Nations Cup, and which was a big deal because I don't think we've had one there since the 70s. So that's that, that was the first one in my lifetime. And I'm lucky enough to have gone and witnessed it. Um, but, yeah, there, there are a lot of differences just off the simple strength that it's a third world nation and. United States states is a powerhouse. So we as Americans over here tend to not pay attention to countries that are not powerhouses. <laughs> and um, I experienced a lot of that growing up, being called names and all of that, being an African. But, you know, we're kind of growing on people now, you know, especially with music. So, um yeah, that's, that's a little bit of just the basics of, of my experience 
you know, we can get more into detail. Though. So you said your father uh, wasn't treated the way he felt he should be treated uh, when he first moved to the United States and was living in Chicago in the 60s and 70s. Elaborate a little more on that. What do you mean by uh, he wasn't treated the way he felt he should be treated? Yeah, so my dad um, was a journalist, um, more so for radio back in his day. You know, my dad is almost 80 years old. And so, you know, he's, he's an OG. Um, before he came to the States, because he had such a popular voice on the radio, they granted him some of these jobs, like um, interpreting the president's speech and translating president's speeches and all of that and traveling with the president of the nation. And this was the first ever president to Cameroon um, after um, they got their independence. So my, my dad was in the mix and highly respected in his community. So coming to the States and uh, trying to further his education. So he had the credentials to do what he did in his country. Um, he couldn't really get going here. He couldn't get a job. The, being a black man you know, was not easy. And especially getting a job at the level that he was at in Africa was you know, next to impossible. So I think that that kind of play took a hit on his ego, first of all, and uh, made him realize that his home country or his home continent is where he probably would thrive the most. And he never came back. Is your father still still in Cameroon or did he come back to Chicago too? No, nah, he's still in Cameroon. He never came back after he left in the 80s. Visited a few times, but never came back to live. So when you came back in eighth grade, uh, where did you go to school and talk about that? Now you're, you're really, quote unquote, an African in Chicago. And I know people have certain prejudices and stereotypes that you had to deal with. So talk about that. Yeah. So when I came back, uh, when I was about 12, 13, I came to live with my sisters because my sisters are much older. Like I said, I have an older pops older mom so i have older siblings and so they remained in in chicago so me coming back um i was i guess dependent on them to kind of you know guide me through um this big world you know called america uh but you know they can't go to class with me every day <laughs> so yeah so i had a pretty tough time um, trying to incorporate myself into this this system you know, I didn't really know much about how a classroom functioned because I had never really schooled here besides like uh, a little bit of kindergarten. So, you know, I got teased a lot for just not knowing um, the different ways in which I'm supposed to comport, you know, comport myself. And uh, that that really took a hit on me and it made me focus on things other than studying <laughs> made me want to fit in more than anything. And so uh, today I still feel the effects of that, of knowing that, Hey man, what was the most important thing back then was just to fit in. You know, there's a lot of gang culture here. You know, there's a lot of racism here. There's, you know, you don't want to stand out too much. You might, you might lose your life, like literally. So I, I took that as a number one priority, even over schoolwork, which, you know, it is what it is. 
And so when you're trying to fit in as an eighth grader uh, living on the north side of Chicago, what are you doing to accommodate uh, the needs to fit in? So when, when um, I moved back, um, my sister actually had gotten married and, she, and they lived on the west side of Chicago initially. And so just that summer, the summer that I came back is when they moved to the north side. So that whole summer, I spent time on the west side of Chicago in 1990, whatever. And uh, it it was rough, but at least I was around black folks. <laughs> I was around black people. And you know how segregated Chicago is. And so moving to the north side was already a culture shock by being around neighbors who did not look like me and me not really knowing much about the Hispanic race here because you know, in Africa, we, we didn't have much of anything. You know, I know they're Equatorial Guinea. I think they speak Spanish and maybe a few other countries have Portuguese you know, descendants or whatever. But, you know, in Cameroon, it's the French and the English and most of West Africa. So I had no clue about who Mexicans were, who Puerto Ricans were. And so being thrown into that mix and them having their own culture, them having their own gangs, like I had to make sure that I didn't stand out too much, not just being African, but even being black. Like I had to find a way to fit in, period and not come off as a threat. And I think that that was the number one thing. Lucky for me, I was real tiny in high school and and, in eighth grade. You know, I shot up in height later on, but so that helped me in the sense that I didn't come off as a threat. But yeah, it was just that, man. It was just trying to be funny, learn the American jokes and try to crack some jokes with the kids and, you know, take being ridiculed uh, well and smile it off and, you know, showcase what what I could do. One thing that I could do back then was sing. And uh, that helped me a lot, man, till today. <laughs> so w- talk about that. You could sing. So how, would you, uh, back then, what kinds of songs What kind of were you singing? What music were you into uh, that you used to uh, win over the skeptics, if you will, uh, in school? So I guess me being born in the States, and moving back to Africa, I always was looked at as the American in Africa. So growing up, I always was interested in this America, of course, right? So we have access to music. That's the one thing that we're in tune with in outside of America, or everybody's in tune with, is sports, music. And uh, me being from Chicago, I knew about Michael Jordan. And uh, that's what got me into, you know, sports, basketball and the songs, you know, that come across to, to the world, you know, from Michael Jackson to, you know, all the big stars, to Janet Jackson's Motown. You know, I knew a lot about Motown. Uh, I think leaving the States in the 80s, we, we had a lot of VHS tapes that we recorded, a bunch of stuff on TV. And we, I just thrived off of that. Um uh, records that my parents had from Whitney Houston on and also gospel music and me being in the church. Uh, my family was very religious. You know, I loved 
gospel and then got into Negro spirituals, which kind of gave me insight on how Americans sing and where the, you know, the, the blueprint of the, the R&B sound comes from. So that's why I'm capable of doing certain things with my voice by listening to Negro spirituals um, on, on cassette <laughs> back in the days. So yeah, some of some of that helped me grasp some of the newer songs when I came back from, you know, God forbid, uh, R. Kelly, and uh, you know, the Ushers, all the popular artists at that time um, in in the nineties. Um, that's what I was singing to the girls, and and I ended up singing a R. Kelly song for my graduation, which was I believe I can fly, from uh, eighth grade graduation. They they gave me the you know, R. Kelly's messed it all up for, for everybody's um, <laughs> everybody's uh, childhood memories. <laughs> so many people saying, I believe I could fly at their graduation. Now you can't even touch any of this music. And yeah, you can't touch it. I've, this has been a comp- topic of conversation all week on the show. Uh, I uh, wrote a, a story in the reader jokingly. It was, but it was serious too about a, a rock, an old rock and roller named Eric Clapton who's a rock guitarist way before your time. So uh, anyway, yeah, where well, Clapton has lost his mind and he's gone the MAGA route. So he's become a Trumpster. And uh, I, I didn't really like his music that much anyway, but because he's uh, a MAGA guy, uh, and I've, I have lefty politics, Peter. So I'm like, you know, I don't want to deal with uh, Eric Clapton anymore. I'm officially boycotting Eric Clapton, all right? Uh, and so uh, not that anybody cares and it's, you know, you really can't say you're doing a boycott, Peter, if you don't listen to his music anyway. So technically it's not a boycott. It'd be a lot harder for me to boycott. I don't know. Um, well, it's really hard for me to boycott Michael Jackson. I mean, I struggle with this one. That's a whole other show. Uh, and so, um, so the other day though, I'm driving in the car and, uh, the one Eric Clapton song I like, which is a song I know you never heard of. And I know, uh, DJ Nate, who's producing this show has never heard of because it's ancient, but it's called Layla. It comes on and it's got these double guitars leading off. And I just started playing air guitar. I'm just sitting in the car on a, on a red light on Western Avenue in Tui. And I'm like, I'm doing air guitar. And then I just say, stop it. You're boycotting this man. This is not good. So I turned the station to talk radio and listen to talk about the Bulls. The point is, or maybe it's the Bears, I don't know. The point is that uh, I do believe in boycotts. And I, I'm i not listening to R. Kelly anymore because that guy went so far off the deep end that yeah, I just don't want to. But I don't blame you for singing. Everybody was singing that song at eighth grade graduations. Um. And we didn't really know much about him then, too, right? And this sickness that he has, or whatever yeah. you call it, you know. Well, what year did you graduate eighth grade? I'll tell you how much you guys were ignoring the news. If you just tell me the year. Ooh. Am I really going to put my age out there like that? <laughs> I don't know. Don't, you know what? Don't <laughs> do just make something up. Just lie. Uh, but, you know, I can't. Because hey, yeah. I'm just going to now, if I say whatever year, you're going to be like, oh. Okay, Peter Jericho, let me just tell you something right now. No matter what year it is, it's a hell of a lot more recently than I graduated. Right. Eighth grade. Definitely. That is for sure. All right, let's let's try it, man. Uh 97. Oh, you're a young man. So you graduated uh, high school in 2001, uh Shures High School 2001. 1997, nobody knew about uh, R. Kelly. 
There you go. Uh, uh, I believe I can fly. Came out ninety six. That is correct. In that Michael Jordan movie. So anyway, um, the, what's the transition between a kid singing R. Kelly songs uh, in eighth grade to the young man that you are now um, writing your own music? And I urge everybody to check it out because it's really a meld of a lot of different styles and stuff. So how did you get from one to the other? I think um, me moving back to Cameroon. So I went back to Cameroon after two years at Shurs. So I didn't even graduate from Shurs. I finished off high school in Cameroon. And I think those years in high school in Cameroon gave, I was a little, I was a lot older um, than my eighth grade year. And I knew a little bit more about myself. And the environment that I was in let me be myself as well. Let me be black. I was in Cameroon, right? So let me be all these things that when I was much younger, I was allowed to be. And I think that that's when I had this real interest for music, knowing that I wanted to incorporate some of who I was in my music. So I could probably present it next time I go back to the, to the States and be like, hey, you guys probably don't like me or whatever because you don't know much about me. So let me sing this song to you guys about who I am. And maybe that would further let you guys accept me. I think that's that's the power of music too, right? It's a language of love, they say. It's a universal language that everybody understands, you know, through melody and, and all of that. And so that's what drew me into wanting to create something that tells my story and um, yeah, a lot of the music that I do create speaks about just who I am um, more so than just love songs but you know I do a little bit of everything and uh, so were you have you been producing your own music ever since that moment when you were moved back to Cameroon or was there a period where you were off doing other endeavors yeah man my life is all over the place man so that's just when I had a realization that you know, I love music and it could be part of my life. I'm not entirely sure I was sold on wanting to write at that time yet, but I went to college in Canada. So, yeah, I'm everywhere. So <laughs> I was back in um, in Vancouver, British Columbia, which is uh, West Coast. And uh, I was there for three years. And that's where I officially um realized that, you know, I didn't really know what I wanted to do in life besides music. Um, when I was in college, I couldn't really figure out a major. I couldn't really just figure out what interested me besides singing. And I've been singing my whole life, right? It's gotten me out of so many different situations. It's helped me survive. It's kept me alive. So why not invest some time and prioritize music and see, you know, where it takes me? And so that's where my journey kind of began was after a couple of years of, of, of college, realizing like, yo, I kind of want to devote some of my life or a lot of my life to music. And then, you know, over time, I kind of because I'm starting grassroots, I don't really have the help of parents or, you know, or even siblings at the time because I was by myself. I was in Canada all, all alone. No family. 
So it was more so just me trying to figure things out. Okay, how do I get in a studio? How do I get on a show? Like everything was grassroots, like me figuring out from scratch with friends that supported me, you know, just supported the talent, you know, but basically strangers to me. So it took a little longer, you know, to kind of figure that out. Uh, But I think um, I caught my first break writing for an artist in about 2009. And that's when, you know, I got publishing and saw an actual check come in. And I'm like, okay, we're, we're going somewhere, <laughs> you know? So, yeah, that's basically where it started off. And, and were, you, were you living in Chicago or Canada back then in 2009 when that first check came home? I was, in, I was back in Chicago. So, so what keeps drawing you back to Chicago? I mean, I, this, this seems to be a, a, a steady theme in, in, in this narrative. You, you came here... You left, and then you came back. Then you left, and yet you came back again. What oh, is it I've about you? So many times, man. I've left so many times too, <laughs> man. I, I could tell you about. Man, I lived in L.A., uh, Oakland, um, Massachusetts for three years or two years or so. But I always come back to Chicago. I think it, it, it all started in Illinois, man. I was born in Aurora. Um, Chicago is the major city. Chicagoans love Chicago. Um, I've always just been surrounded by family here because I got a lot of family here. My sisters still live here. Got a lot of aunts and uncles that went through Chicago. Some still here. Um, it's it's just home, you know. Uh, Cameroon is home as well, but everything that I've ever known about the states that I tie myself to, especially as a kid, has been Chicago, especially Michael Jordan playing there. Come on. And I'm like, that was ridiculous. And then I started liking artists like R. Kelly who were all from Chicago. And I just spoke highly of Chicago every time I was away. So it always felt like I wanted to, you know, go back and learn some new stuff about Chicago so I can go and tell the world about Chicago. And then another thing is lately, I wouldn't say lately, but Chicago's had a bad rap, right? Um, for the, the murders and and all the, the different political things that have happened over the last 20 plus years. And that's just off of my time. I know that there was, you know, so much going on in Chicago even before, you know, my memory, you know, as far back as my memory takes. But um I enjoyed my time here, man. And I always wanted to come back and tell people like, man, Chicago isn't so bad, man. We have a beautiful downtown. Um, The people are nicer than the people in New York, especially downtown. Um, We just have this crime thing that we can't get past. Uh, But I've thrived in it. I've lived in the bad neighborhoods. I've seen the gangs. I've seen all of these things and I've survived it. So I felt like, Hey, this is me. Like if I survived this, this place, I better live here too. (laughs) Yeah. So I, I, uh, I've struggled with Chicago my whole life, Peter, not to use you as a therapist, but let's just say true. And, uh, I, I, I was not raised here. I moved here in 81 and half the time I say to myself, what am I doing in this godforsaken city? Uh, and then it's really twisted and weird and perverse. When I leave Chicago and I'm somewhere else, 
I'm constantly <laughs> thinking about Chicago and I'm following the news. And uh, when I land and come back to Chicago, I was always like, oh, yeah, I'm coming down Irving Park Road. Oh, yeah, Chicago. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm back. So, yeah, I know what you're saying. It's really hard to get away. It's captivating. I, I, I mean, we could do a whole show about crime in Chicago. We do a lot of talk about that. Um, my theory, and I get your thoughts on this before we delve into some of your songs, uh, is that Chicago, very strong in Chicago, very prevalent in Chicago, and you can hear it in some of the rap songs uh, that come out of Chicago. And Chicago has always had a re what I call retaliation culture. And Chicagoans are very proud of the fact that if you punch them, they will punch you back. And that's metaphorically speaking. Now it's shooting or knifing or what have you. And that goes back to the days of Al Capone. Chicago's are tough and, you know, and they're politically speaking, they're the biggest bunch of wimps in the world. They let powerful people boss them around all the time, which is so ironic. You get the biggest, baddest, toughest Chicago guy talk about how tough he is. And then, oh, I can't say that, Ben, I can't say that on the air because I'll get in trouble. I'm like, man, you're so tough. <laughs> Where's that toughness when I need it? But they're tough on each other. You know what I'm saying? And I, so that's my theory. What's your thoughts about my theory? Yeah, I, I agree with it fully. Um, I kind of think that any sort of minority are, and I'm not necessarily calling Chicago a minority per se, but when you, you don't have power, you tend to take out stuff on each other, but you're still scared of authority. And, and I think that that's what we suffer from. I think that that's what the, the black population suffers from as well, you know, individually, like we, we kill each other, of course, right? They, they say, but we're scared to go downtown and, you know, you, you might go to jail if you go into the white neighborhoods or whatever, you know, we're, we're, we're scared to, and, you know, there's, there's irony in that, right? Like I lived on the West side for a stretch and um, Oak Park, right? Like kind of separates, you know, um, the, the furthest end of the West side you know, to the suburbs and they have beautiful homes there and you'll never really hear much about these gangsters or whatever going over there and causing havoc because they're scared, but they'll destroy their neighbor, their neighbor's home and their neighborhoods. And you wonder like, if you want, it would make more sense if you took from those who had, as opposed to taking from your neighbor who has just as little as you do. But, you know, it's just what what it is. And I think that um, it's just from being in Chicago. But so many other cities are just as bad, just as corrupt. Uh, maybe they're better at hiding it. Uh, in that last riff, you sound a little like a member of the Chicago Chamber of Commerce uh, <laughs> defending your beloved hometown. You know, Ben, yeah, it's bad here, but it's really bad at Cleveland. You ever been in Cleveland, Ben? Okay. <laughs> you know, so, all right. I get it, but you know, I, I I was in Oakland, right? And I know you've probably heard some things about Oakland uh, before it got gentrified to the extent that it has gotten to now. Like, man, there were some scary places, and I'm usually not a scared guy, <laughs> but man, there's some scary places in that Oakland. And I'm like, whoo, what am I doing here? Uh, same with LA, right? Um, uh, LA can be tough if you're, you know, in Crenshaw or. You know, some of these, you know, different parts of L.A. that, man, probably don't want no business being there. So so I, that's why I feel like that person. But, you know, who knows? 
there's a movie from the 90s, way before your time, so there's no need that you would know it, but it's called Devil of the Blue Dress, and it takes place in Los Angeles. And in the movie, uh, Don Cheadle plays this really tough guy that comes from Houston. And it's like, Houston is the tough... It, like, the people in LA can't believe... <laughs> Don Cheadle is hilarious in this movie. But but it's Houston that's the tough place that people can't believe, you know? And uh, he's from the, uh, the Third Ward, I think it is, in Houston. All right. Uh, have you ever articulated any of these themes in a song? And if so, talk about it. Just, just uh, you know, quote the song, cite the song. Uh, talking about the frustrate people are frustrated with their uh, relative powerlessness in terms of the larger world. So they take it out on other powerless people who live uh, next uh, nearby them. Have you ever dealt with that theme in particular? In any oh song? yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like if you check out um, the song I have called West Side Story, actually, you know, it's like me comparing it to the play and the movie um but just speaking on being from the west side and comparing the black folks to let's say the hispanics in that in that play you know how we kind of like battling and and the the the, the white group in that play i kind of compared it to the police right and how we are kind of like battling you know the different authorities and we kind of are killing each other as well while doing this. And so I have that West Side Story and I have a song called Black Excellence, which speaks on us killing each other as well. And uh, also speaking to us to be great, right? Like speaking about Black folks just finding a way, you know, through adversity to just be great people like, like we've always been and and having the ability to be. And um, man, I got a lot of songs that talk about stuff like that. I have a song called Cap, which is uh, colonized African people, <laughs> which uh, just speaks about us being trapped, right? In this world where nobody really cares for us. We don't, you know, oh, no, 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 I'm an African. You say you don't love me, but you want my melanin. It's just like uh, they want to be us, but don't want to be us. <laughs> you know, it's just kind of that, that tricky position, right? And that's what we've experienced as Black folks in this country. And I put myself right in the mix because I've lived in this city. I've lived in this country. And from a distance, you don't look at me any different than just a, another Black man. And, you know, I face stuff. I've, I've, I've got beat up by police before. Um, in Markham, <laughs> uh, which is known for its corruption, at least at the time. Uh, tricky part is there were black cops, but that's what it is, right? The, they're their own gang, whether they're black, white, Hispanic, Asian, whatever. They stick together and they have a certain view on black people and what they stand for and how much of a threat they are. So. They act accordingly. And these are the things that we deal with while dealing with crime in our neighborhoods. But it is what it is. Uh, you have a, uh, a song with a line, and I told you I was going to uh, recite the line and then ask you to do a riff on it. Uh, and now I'm going to apologize in advance because you won't hear the poetry in the line with me just saying it, ladies and gentlemen. You have to hear Peter do it. So I apologize in advance for butchering uh, your work. 
and uh, I, I say this line uh, a lot. I, <laughs> I really like this line. You used to laugh at our funny names. Now you want to Wakanda everything. And uh, I was not a big fan. Don't take, don't get mad at me or anything of the Black Panther movie. I don't really like um, what are the the comic uh, the Marvel comics? Isn't that what it is? I don't really like those. There's Marvel. I, I, you're probably a, a huge fan, but I they're they're so um, tip. Uh, they're so predictable. Each movie is exactly the same, but like the same, like here comes now 20 minutes of some uh, computer generated fight scene. That's really stupid. You know what I mean? And there's like some witty conversation, usually dialogue at the outset of the movie. And then they go, well, we're exhausted from writing that dialogue. So we're now we're going to fill it up with 90 minutes of just filler. Uh, So I pretty much put black Panther uh, uh, in that category, but it, it was a huge hit in this country, as you know, and everybody's Wakanda this, Wakanda that, and, you know, doing this thing. And when you, I heard that line, I was like, Peter Jericho, you went into my head. <laughs> so, uh, first of all, why don't you do the line so people can appreciate it so they don't just uh, just hear my butchered rendition and then talk about what you're getting at with that. So go ahead, Peter. Pull up, pull up. It's a celebration reading grown up. You used to laugh at our silly dreams. Now you Wakanda, everything. You want the blood diamonds and gold chains. Which one of you inspired a real change? See, you want to ride, but don't want to die. You want to win, but don't want to try. So it's basically, um, yeah, so I, I agree with you on the Marvel thing. I kind of compare it to, like, wrestling, you know. That <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, it's supposed to be a child thing, right? But these kids grew up, you know, and now they're 50, 60 years old, still like, oh my God, Batman. Oh my God, Santa Claus. You know, it's it's basically the same thing. It's a bunch of grown kids who need some type of validation through that to appreciate Black people, you know? So I saw a post that somebody said like, oh yeah, it's Wakanda. It's not like black people had anybody like Martin Luther King or, you know, or Rosa Parks or all these people that stood up for black rights. It took a fake comic um, to kind of give us inspiration and draw the country closer. But, you know, whatever works. Right. Um, I mentioned it for that reason, too. Um, But more more so. For the fact, like what I've been talking about. Africans are becoming more of a thing, right? We're kind of like a fad these days. We're, you know, we're, we're in, we're in style. And um, I got all these girls that I know who are now dating African men. You know, that's, that's the thing. It's the end thing. What country are you from? Ooh, <laughs> I want to uh, do my ancestry uh, background. I had I had a girl actually hit me up once and say, she was from Cameroon. And I was like, wow, awesome, man. Um, what part? And she was like, well, I did my ancestry test and I realized that that's where my bloodline is from. And I'm like, what do you know about it? Well, I don't really know much about it, but that's where I'm from. I'm like, oh, you're just going to claim it, know nothing about it, but go around telling people that you're from this this place. But that's what it, that's what it is, right? It's become a thing, even without people knowing about the struggles that you know, go on in that nation 
They don't know anything about the, polit- about the politics of that nation. They know nothing at all. But because it's an end thing to be something, people will jump on that bandwagon, right? That's basically what it is. It's bandwagoning. Just you know, the whole African experience just because, you know, they're in. So that, that's what that part of the song um, was about. We used to laugh at our funny names. Couldn't pronounce them. And now, Wakanda. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. But, you know, uh, I have to admit, I'm at confession time. Uh, I'm using you as a therapist, and now I'm using you as a priest. Uh, confession time. I, I am envious of uh, African-Americans to a degree on this front because they like they can link themselves to a land. You get what I'm saying? Like, I don't have, link myself to anything. I, I'm totally like drifting around the United States trying to find home. And Europe uh, is where my ancestors from. And Europe try to exterminate my people. So it's like I, I definitely don't think of Europe as my home. And I'm Jewish. A lot of Jews moved to Israel, but I don't think of Israel's locked into a war with Palestine. I don't feel at home there so i'm stuck in chicago (laughs) so when i hear uh black americans talk about you know uh the motherland i'm like oh i don't have a motherland but you know what i'm saying so yeah i i I get you i think where the issue lies is how we left that motherland right and that disconnect and while you envy the, the african-american or the black american they don't know anything about this land and they've almost been taught that the land is worthless and not worthy of even attempting to go back and find out anything about this land while you know those in power keep going back to that land and taking advantage of the resources that that land has and i think that that's where it gets tricky is because if we were able to even go back, I, I went back to Cameroon. I've gone back to Cameroon actually about maybe six, seven times in the last 10 years. And there's always a growing population of another race that seems to have more power than those who are from there. And that's tricky. Same with when I went to Jamaica. And I went um, in the touristic areas and I go into some of the shops to go buy stuff. And it's the Jamaican leading you in. Come, come buy souvenirs. But it's an Indian man at the cash register collecting all the money. And so, I, you know, I went once to one of the guys. I'm like, man, you must have been in Jamaica a long time. You got all these black folks working for you. He's like, no, got here two months ago. I'm like, two months ago, and you're already running a store? He's like, yeah, my uncle's store. You know, he flew me in from India, and I'm running it now. And I'm like, that is crazy. Same thing with Africa. You have a bunch of Asians who come there. They build hospitals, and they build all these infrastructures, and they have other Asians running it. And, you know, they teach the local people nothing on how to maintain any of the structures. So they're always needed to, um, you know, kind of boss everything around. And I think that that's where I I lose some of the envy (laughs) because, 
you know, the black American going back to Africa won't even control anything, you know, because a lot of it is already controlled by European countries. You know, if you think about it, um, me mentioning my dad coming here in the 70s. Cameroon got its independence in like 1960, like think about that. (laughs) A lot of African countries got independence in the 60s. They didn't even have presidents. They didn't have a government. It was still ran by white people from all the way from the Berlin Conference when they were pushing, you know, nations to, you know, the Germans and all these countries sat in a room saying, hey, let's divide Africa, you know, almost on some like we we discovered them, almost like how America was discovered. So, yeah, I. I'm I'm passionate about, you know, that also pushing the message um, to African-Americans, hoping that they do find you know, it in themselves to learn more about Africa and wanting to come and, you know, find a way to brother up with, with, with um, their fellow black people, not to be in a position where they're greater than anybody else. It's just like, man, this is, you know, this is our stuff. Let's have some type of control over it, you know, and it is what it is. I keep saying it is what it is because, you know, I could preach this. I'm not the first person to talk about this in the last hundred years and I won't be the last. Well, yeah, no, it is what it is. Uh, If you say something profound uh, and a a bit upsetting, uh, like that last that you went on, which was really good, by the way, figure out how to put that in a song, all right? Uh, Get in a week uh but seriously when you and then you just realize you, you articulated it you explained it but there's really nothing you could do about it so it is what it is it's like resignation you know well can't do shit about that so, so hey how about these bulls <laughs> yeah well we'll get to the bulls right. how about these bulls right. that's the story of my life in the city of chicago peter if i again may share this with you i have battled the powers that be in this city and Lavera can tell you, for years, okay, for years, and I've been on the losing side of almost every single political battle in this city. And I used to go into gyms back in the eighty when my kids were playing basketball, and that's when I met Lavera. And there would be, like, parents who I could tell were connected with the powers that be. Like, sometimes, you know, and I go, look, we're just parents. Of the, you could talk to me. You know, if you're, the, the sky's not going to fall, you talking to me, okay? And I'll pretend like uh, I didn't, you, you could go back and tell uh, whoever, the mayor or the alderman, that what a despicable human being I am, you know? I won't tell them that you talked to me. But so I understand uh, what it's like to battle your, bang your head against the wall. Trust me when I tell you that. Um, all right. Uh, since you mentioned my beloved Bulls, let's close uh, with uh, you're a huge basketball fan. I learned this the last time we talked. Ladies and gentlemen, I gave him a test. We were talking on the phone. I gave Peter Jericho a test. I was like, he says he's a basketball fan. I don't believe it. I forget. We I don't even remember what the test was. But, I, but it was like it was like 10 minutes later, you were still talking about it. I'm like, I think he passed the audition. Uh, so my beloved Bulls, uh, did not make any trades at the trading deadline. They're holding Pat, even though they're, they got four very important players out with injury. And the strategy, Peter, is to just 
get healthy and pray that they'll all be healthy uh, at, when the playoffs start and they can make a run. Uh, do you think that's uh, too much wishing and hoping and praying? Or do you think that's like a, a reasonable strategy to pursue? Ooh, this is tough. I personally believe that the expectancy for where this season was going to go was already pretty low by fans, by people from the outside, other teams. They said, uh, DeRozan, who's that guy? Levine, we've already watched him play ball. We saw him in L.A. We saw him with the Pelicans. What, uh, what is he going to do? Caruso came off the bench. We don't really believe that this team can really do anything but maybe make the playoffs. So I think that with that and us somewhat overachieving, the organization is cool with just being like, okay, we'll see how far this team can take us if they get healthy. And if they don't take us far, we didn't think they were going to go far anyway. And maybe this buys us some time to maybe later on package these players for somebody else. Um, so I, I don't know if there was really a move that we could have made because we did not come into this season believing that we had a contender. We looked like a contender on some nights, but, you know, with injury, you know, it's we'll never know. <laughs> you know. You know, we'll never know if, with all our players playing, because the Lakers have been using this this same excuse all year. Oh, we're injured. We're down a player. When we get our full team back, we're going to be able to win it all. And you know, they've been playing with AD and LeBron for the last two, three weeks now, and it's not looking better. So, yeah, I don't know. I'm just happy that there's just positive talks about Chicago basketball again. And I think that that's where I sit. Um, we make the playoffs, we make the second round. That's better than we've done since the Rose era. So, you know, can I really be mad? You know, only one team wins it all, so. Uh, that's that you're heading into uh, it is what it is country on that one. No, no, no. Uh, uh, now, I, I will. <laughs> what I'm saying too, though, is the Suns look really damn good. Okay, and they're not even a team that man. We 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 can't beat the Warriors, let alone the Suns. We've not beaten a top five team in the league this this season. We haven't beaten the Bucks. We haven't beaten the Warriors. We haven't beaten Cleveland, I don't think. Yes, we have. Um, we, we just beat them. Yeah, we just beat them. Okay, they just they just made top four in the East. I don't even think they're top five in the league. So uh, they, no. Yeah, so they're not even top five in the league. So we've not beaten Philly. We haven't beaten... Man, who's another team that's up there that we have not? No, we. I'll, I noticed by heart. We haven't beaten Golden State Warriors. They've trounced us twice. We haven't beaten the Phoenix Suns. We haven't beaten the Milwaukee Bucks. Although we should have won that game. Now you're going to go. You're giving excuses. But uh, Grayson Allen, a total bum and a cheap shot, and hardest took down Alex Caruso. And I'll say this to that. 
I'll say this. Oh, Phoenix Suns are so happy. They think they're so good. They beat the Bulls. Devin Booker scored 38. I believe it would have been a different game. Yes, I'm heading into R. Kelly. I believe I can fly country on this one. I believe it would have been a different game had Alex Caruso, Alonzo Ball been there and with a better, tougher defense. And so what I just say is this. We haven't beaten Miami. No, we haven't beaten Miami. We haven't beaten Memphis, I don't think. Yeah, we only played them once. But yeah, your point's well taken. We've been beaten up. <laughs> we, <laughs> we've been beaten up whenever we play these teams. So yeah, I... I'm just trying to look at the glass. What is it? How do they say it? Half full as opposed to half empty. And uh, and just say, wait, do you see these guys when they come together healthy? It's unbelievable. No, I believe in the talent. Man. So here's the difference I make between the, the Lakers and the Bulls. And the Lakers, look, I am not quite sure about the chemistry of that team even when they're healthy. Like, I'm just not sure about what they were thinking when they put Westbrook with Dave, uh, AD and LeBron. I just like, what are they thinking? I thought they'd be much better with Kuzma on that team. Alex Caruso on that team with the bulls. When they're full, everybody's there. I sense there's a chemistry there. There is like, uh, a thought behind it that makes logic. They just got to be healthy. So that's, to me, what I see the difference. As great as LeBron James is, and he's the greatest of your generation, I just I don't understand how they thought they were going to have a winning team. With uh, they looked at achievements as opposed to more so chemistry, right? You're looking at a team that has... Whew, Dwight Howard was a franchise player for Orlando. Mello was a franchise player for Nuggets and New York. Westbrook, franchise player. AD, franchise player. Obviously, LeBron. So I'm, we're naming six. We actually have maybe like four of those players that are on the top 75 greatest players of all time. So you're taking all these egos. And you're putting them together and expecting them to gel. Like everybody wants to touch the ball because they played where they were the man somewhere. Meanwhile, you take the Bulls where you have a bunch of guys who have been you know, role players. Of course, they're going to buy into, yeah, let DeRozan and Levine shoot the ball. And we can stick defense and score where we can. And there'll be chemistry, you know. Yeah, a bunch of players who've been marginalized their whole career and written off, and I uh, got huge chips on their shoulder. And I think it's Javante Green in his category. Uh, DeMar DeRozan. I mean, everybody laughed at him. So anyway, I knew there'd be another hour of basketball talk, so I better cut this off. Uh, P Peter, one more time, uh, you're immensely talented, and I urge everybody to go check you out. Tell folks where you'll be performing one more time. Yeah, I'll be performing at the Promontory on the 17th of uh, February. Uh, doors open at 7 uh, p.m. $10 tickets. Not really too costly, man. So, you know, make it out. And um, I'm also at Tribe, is what it's called, on the 26th of February, which is a Saturday. Um, come out. For the 17th, man, it's right around the time of, you know, the love's you know, the 14th, you know, so, you know, bring a loved one out, <laughs> you know, come and show some love 
uh, I'll, I'll put on a show for you. I partially have a band and some, you know, it's kind of like a listening party slash you know, me performing live and telling some stories about, you know, Africa through song and, you know, me being comedic and all of that. So it should be an interesting um, hour and a half or so of me, you know, babbling. Yeah, definitely come out and uh, Prince Jericho on, on Instagram. Please follow me. Uh, Peter Jericho Music on Facebook. Peter Jericho on YouTube. Go check some tunes out. Um, I'm streaming everywhere. So, yeah, definitely check me out. Give me a chance. You know, the African boy, you know, over here with Ben, you know, you know come and check me out. <laughs> All right. Very good. Uh, Peter Jericho, it was a pleasure talking to you. I hope you come back. Uh, and uh, great luck uh, going forward. Uh, that's Peter Jericho. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. Take care.